Culture Affidavit episode 123, Cardboard Heroes. Welcome to episode 123 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Well, after four episodes with special guests, five, if you count Fallen Walls Open Curtains last month, I'm flying solo and talking about a topic that I think is near and dear to many of our geek hearts, which is baseball cards and trading cards. I don't have much of a trading card collection now, but when I was younger, I spent a lot of time, like a lot of kids my age, collecting baseball cards. Then, when non-sports trading cards really boomed in the early 1990s, I bought quite a few of those. So over the course of this show, I'm going to talk about both. I've got my history with collecting cards, some books and films about baseball cards, and we'll even take the time to open four unopened packs of vintage baseball and trading cards live on this podcast. Will I find a rare expensive card that can pay off my mortgage? Will I find a nostalgic favorite that will remind me of how wonderful this hobby was? Will I just get a load of crappy doubles that make me wonder why I spent money? Will I choke on the gum? Listen and find out. So I guess I'll start with my personal history here. While I'm sure that I had some sort of trading card earlier than 1985, maybe a few top Star Wars cards or something, that was the year that I collected my first set of Topps baseball cards, as well as the beginning of my very brief period collecting Garbage Pail Kids, starting with Series 2 of those cards. Now, if you want to hear a little bit about Garbage Pail Kids and my history with them, check out Episode 74, where I did a countdown of various fads. I can't tell you exactly what got me into baseball cards, except that I started following the Mets the same year. And I either had a friend who was buying the cards or my cousin thought it was cool to collect the baseball cards, something like that. At any rate, 1985, that was the set that was my first. And I didn't have a ton of them, but I had enough to get some of my favorite players, especially a bunch of Mets. I would dive into baseball card collecting before I got into comic books. 
Granted, there was about a year between these two hobbies, and then I'd pick up comics for real right around the time I started to get out of baseball cards, as the last years I actively collected were 1990 and 1991. So, yeah, we're talking a pretty short period of time. But it's one that begins when I was seven and ends when I was 14, which are some of the prime ages for being a baseball card collector. My history with the hobby isn't anything particularly epic. I don't have a massive collection and to my knowledge didn't have any truly valuable cards, having missed the 1984 set and the possibility of owning a Don Mattingly rookie. I mean, I may have had Dwight Gooden's 1985 card, which is his first card in the regular set, but there was also the 1984 traded set and that was technically his rookie card. And well, let's just say I didn't really have anything valuable. And I'll get to the idea of cards having monetary value later on in the episode when I talk about some media surrounding baseball cards. Right now, I'll just say that the amount of money one could get for a baseball card was never really as important as trying to complete a set. In fact, in those six years of collecting, I only owned the entire Topps set once, and that was 1990. Otherwise, I had tried my best to collect the series through buying packs of baseball cards with whatever money I could scrounge up. And my collection was pretty much exclusively Topps cards, mainly because that's what most of the stores I went to carried. Packs of Topps cards came in three sizes. You had your wax pack of 15 cards that were priced at around 40 or 50 cents and came with a pack of gum. You had the 24 pack, which was also called the cello pack because they were sold in cellophane. And that was about 75 cents. And finally, you had the rack pack, which I think cost more than a dollar and was 42 cards plus a special glossy all-star card. Those are my favorite. And when I had the money to get one of them, I always made sure to look through the packs to find an all-star I didn't have. Uh, that's because, by the way, instead of being like in the middle of a of the pack or something, the all-star card was on the top of one of the rows of cards, and usually you could see who you were getting. Anyway, baseball cards were available at our local stationery store, specifically Sable Card and Gift. They consistently carried wax packs and sometimes would carry the larger ones as well. Toys R Us was good for a rack pack too. And what was cool about that was that whenever my parents took us to Toys R Us to help pick out a gift for someone else because we'd actually, or because we'd actually behaved well enough at Kids R Us, scamming a pack of baseball cards out of my mom or dad, as opposed to say a video game, that was a pretty sure bet. Card and gift though, was important to this hobby because it was one of the few places that I was allowed to ride on my bike when I was a kid. And much like Amazing Comics later on, this would prove to be part of the hobby's success, especially when a baseball card store did open up in Sayville right around the beginning of the 1986 season. All right, for all I know, it might have been open sooner than that. But Blue Chip, which was the name of the store, was located on a railroad avenue right next to the train tracks and across from the train station. It's currently the location of a beauty parlor and day spa. Unlike Amazing Comics, though, I didn't go there very often and rarely without my parents. When I went to buy G.R. Joe or Transformers books from Bob back in 1987, he was welcoming, or at least tolerant of the kids who were plunking down our hard-earned dollars. The guy at Blue Chip didn't have the most welcoming store. It reeked of, like, cigar and pipe smoke. It was always a good 10 degrees hotter than the temperature outside, and it was really low-lit. The guy was nice enough, especially on my first day when my dad brought me in and he sold me the whole starter kit for collecting, you know, an album with a bunch of pages. And I also bought the 1986 uh, Mets team set of the, of the Topps cards. 
because he he would do that. He broke up a bunch of sets and said, like, you can buy all of, like, one team instead of the whole set, which was pretty cool. But I never got the impression that he wanted kids around the place. And I think it was nice to me because my dad, well, especially back in 1986, whose hobby was bodybuilding, was intimidating. Okay, my assessment of this guy might be inaccurate because I went to the store a handful of times before it eventually closed, but I figured he opened the store for real collectors and would have preferred the kiddies stay away and get their wax packs at the stationery store. Because really, a kid who pays like, what, 50 cents for a 1986 Pete Rose cards isn't exactly going to pay your rent. Anyway, that at least got me started, and my friends and I began the wheeling and the dealing that was a time-honored tradition in baseball card collecting. That was something my dad told me about, saving your doubles so that you could trade them. There actually was a game where kids could flip baseball cards and whomever threw the last card the right way won, a whole, won the whole pot, or at least that was the game the kids were playing in the beginning of the Let's Go Mets video. Three more cards left. Ball game. Why'd you lose all our cards? I tried my best. Well, you lost all our cards. Kids, good. I Go ahead, Doc. Do it. To be honest, I never learned that game. Neither did my friends. We just tried to get each other's cards. I don't recall anyone ever being a dick about it or anything like that. Just that we would offer up trades, some of which were utterly ridiculous and were never going to work, and others that did because they were basically plucking holes in a collection. And I'd say all of this peaked in 1988 and 1989. Those years were fifth and sixth grade, the last years of elementary school, before we all went to junior high. And I think that by then, we, by and large, stopped getting toys. We were into Nintendo games and baseball cards. And I remember going over to a number of friends' houses to flip through their albums or even help them organize what was thrown into a random shoebox or an old tin. This is going to sound so nerdy, but... Then again, look at who you're dealing with. But organizing baseball cards was one of my favorite things to do. My preferred method of organizing, by the way, teams by, by teams in alphabetical order and then alphabetically by player. Special cards like record breakers, all-stars, and checklists were just toward the end of the set. So I would have from um, either angels or athletics, depending on the, the way A's was done in the... Um, in, in the top set all the way to uh, Yankees. And then like the all-stars, the record breakers, and the checklist at the end. And I suppose there were several ways you could do this, by the way. Um, you got my way there. You could go from just one to 792. You could go alphabetically by teams with players in number order. Uh, if you did that, you can then put your special cards in all the way in the back of the set, or you could put those special cards behind the individual players. So you'd have Dwight Gooden's regular card, his NL All-Star card, his 85 Record Breaker card. So I'm going to get Professor Allen on this. It's a whole other conversation to have. All right. I think, <laughs> but I think I found it fun because I got to sort through a friend's cards. I could just got to look at all the different stuff. I was also a big fan of reading the cards especially those with fun facts about the players. It's how I knew that Keith Hernandez was a Civil War buff long before it was mentioned on an episode of Seinfeld. And they were one of those parent-approved hobbies that didn't seem to be lighting my money. Okay, well, they're lighting their money on fire. 
Granted, it kind of was, but considering my sister convinced them to spend I don't know how much money on those charms for a plastic charm necklace that sat in a drawer, I think I'm okay with the baseball cards. Besides, collecting baseball cards gave me something to look forward to whenever my parents dragged me around some small town or city when we were on vacation because they wanted to look at antique stores or visit a glass factory or some shit. One of my cooler finds back in 1987 was a box full of 1978 Topps cards that were in a country junk shop in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We'd gone to Hershey Park for a quick vacation, and then my parents had detoured us into Amish country, because of course they did. And so I suppose they let me pick out a bunch of the cards because I was behaving or something, or maybe they felt bad for having dragged me through Amish country. Anyway, I don't know why I walked out with just a few, except that maybe I was given a budget and had to choose what I wanted. But instead of looking for a star player like, say, Reggie Jackson or Nolan Ryan or the Paul Molitor Alan Trammell rookie card, which was probably at the time the most valuable card in that set, I grabbed a handful of Mets and a Tim McCarver card. Yeah, I, I don't know. At one point, though, baseball cards did so, sort of become about accumulation rather than collecting. And I think the turning point would have been 1990 because that's when I got two full Topps 1990 sets, one of which I kept in the cellophane and sold on eBay in the early 2000s for $20. Seriously, though, that was the year where I deliberately wanted a full set in addition to whatever I collected because I thought that it would be worth money someday. The duplicate set happened by chance, by the way. It was not on purpose. It was just a duplicate gift for like my birthday or Christmas or something. But I had this one really brief moment where I thought I was going to become a serious collector. I think that began when someone gave me the high-grade baseball card collecting kit for Christmas. This would have been around 88 or 89, and it might have been from a grandparent or an aunt who bought it knowing that I was into baseball cards. So it's not something that I would have actually asked for. Still, I had known about baseball cards having monetary value for at least a few years. Back in 1986, 2020 ran a segment about how baseball cards were becoming hot properties, and either my parents taped it or I put a tape in the VCR and hit record. At any rate, all I know is that it was on the tape that also contained my taped-off ABC version of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So anytime I watched Raiders, I watched that segment first. Unfortunately, 2020's online archives aren't very deep, and all I could, and I couldn't find anything online. Um, beyond them, not even on the Wayback Machine or anything like that. I don't think I have that video cassette anymore. I couldn't find it at home. I'm pretty sure my parents got rid of it. So I'm just going on memory. From what I remember, though, the story was a great primer for the hobby, as well as a decent quick history of the industry. They looked at who manufactured them, why they were so hot at that moment, what made a card valuable, and what cards were valuable. They specifically looked at Pete Rose's rookie card, mainly because he'd just broken Ty Cobb's all-time hits record the year before, and then they talked about Mickey Mantle's 1952 Topps rookie card, as well as the T206 Honus Wagner card from 1909, which at the time was the most valuable card in the world. I believe the Mantle rookie has surpassed that. One of them sold for something like $5.2 million a few years ago. I know there's a lot of controversy over various versions of the T206 Wagner that exist. Um, 
I've read quite a bit about it, but a lot of what I read was a few years old. So if you're a card collector and you're listening to this uh, and you actually have information about it, feel free to write in and, and let me know. The Wagner card, the Mantle card, the Rose card, these were all mentioned in the baseball card price guide that came with the high grade kit, which also included an album in four pages, a guide to collecting cards, 10 polybag card holders, 50 cards that were advertised as, quote, a great starter collection from different years, five, quote, all-time great baseball cards, and five, quote, rare and famous card reprints. I got this info, by the way, by looking this up on eBay, where you can find quite a few complete sets of these high-grade kits. And these collecting kits were pretty common back in the day because they did make great Christmas presents. Yeah, there wasn't really any value to the contents. Those 50 cards weren't usually worth very much. There was quantity and enough to keep you occupied. The album was a full album. It wasn't some skinny-ass binder. So that was worth it because it prevented another special trip to a card store. You know, even if four pages was kind of a ripoff. And yeah, I realized that I could have gone and just bought a three-ring binder that had, that had that been my album. But a plain white Avery binder? Does that have the words baseball card and an appropriate illustration on it? No. And I didn't have a copy of Bruderbund's print shop to print up a really cool thing on a dot matrix printer. So high grade. So like I said, you can get these on eBay if you want. Although seeing an Earl Weaver card on the top of the 50 cards isn't exactly enticing. And I'd forgotten that the Guide to Collecting Baseball Cards was a flimsy penny saver type publication. Probably lost that pretty quickly too. But the price guide? Ho oh, ho, I poured over that price guide. Now, I don't know if I was ever really convinced that I could make money off of baseball cards. But I do know that I was fascinated by what the cards look like from year to year, as well as who was considered important in each set. Plus, since High Grade started their guide in 1952, they covered the whole of the modern era, and I essentially got a bit of history on the players and the cards in the same way I would get a little bit of comics history by flipping through the library copies of the Overstreet Guide. I had a love for baseball history. I still do. And that's why I owned the Sears catalog exclusive set called Greatest Sluggers, Pitchers, and Hitters. It was a 135-card set that had vintage pictures of all-time great players with stats on the back. It was like those wildlife treasury version animal things. Remember that came in the green box and you sorted them? But for baseball cards. And the Sears catalog, man, the Sears catalog was so great for this random collector's stuff. Uh, Wishbook Web is a great uh, website if you ever want to fall, fall down a nostalgia hole. And uh, they've scanned like years, going back to like the 50s and 40s of Sears catalogs. So they got scans from like, you know, the 80s when I was a kid. And I have to say that it gave me the same rush looking through them as I would get when I was a kid and it came in the mail. Even if the majority of the stuff was random ephemeral stuff that would collect a lot of dust. But here's a rundown of the Sears Catalogs baseball card offerings. And I think I looked at the 1988 or 89 year. An official MLB baseball card collector's case, which was a big plastic baseball-shaped carrying case that was modeled kind of after that Hot Wheels carrying case. You know, the one was a tire. The Sports Talk Player. This is a transistor radio-sized thing that would literally read you stats and facts about players if you slid a card into a designated slot. Somewhere, someone has this in the back of a closet, but the batteries are corroded, and if it does work it now, it sounds like Linder Blair and The Exorcist. 
Baseball Hall of Famers cards. These were a set similar to that Sluggers Pitchers and Hitters set that I own. They were modeled kind of after the 75 top set in terms of their um, their look. I did wind up with a few of those in that high-grade kit. I really wanted this set, and I may have asked for it at some point, but I never got it. A, quote, valuable card set or some sort of pile of cards that you can buy. And I think this was a random assortment of cards from several years and was more than likely doubles upon doubles. The things that exist to get kids sucked into a hobby, let me tell you. Anyway, even though I did spend a lot of hours poring over my cards, after 1990, I wasn't really that interested. In fact, the only reason I had any of the 1991 Topps cards was because of the Vernondale General Store in North Sutton, New Hampshire. Now, I kind of told this story, in part at least, on an episode of Mountain Comics with Rob Kelly last summer, but every year my parents rent a cabin on Keezer Lake in North Sutton, New Hampshire. On the lake, there are a lot of cabins, a state park, a church, a B&B, and a general store. We would always walk up there to buy candy or copies of Mad Magazine and wax packs of cards. Or we would buy these things in New London, New Hampshire, which was a few miles up the road. I hadn't really been buying them in 1991. My priority by that time was comic books. But being there with my sister and a family friend, I decided, ah, what the heck, and I dropped a good amount of money on them. I never bought another pack after that, so all of my 1991 Topps cards were Lake cards. But that didn't mean I didn't. I stopped collecting cards. By the end of the 80s, and especially the early 90s, collector's cards had gone through a boom similar to what we were seeing with comic books. Everything, and I mean everything, had a trading card set. Full House, that shitty, shitty sitcom, had a trading card set. And I know, because my sister once sent me a pack as a joke. Unlike baseball cards, I cannot tell you what my first set of non-sports cards was. I know that for a brief period in 1990, my friend uh, John and I bought a ton of NHL Pro Set cards. So it was, that was sports cards. It was hockey cards. We bought them at a thrift market they were holding at our junior high school. But otherwise, my first non-sports cards were probably a pack of Return of the Jedi cards. And I can't say that with any real accuracy, except I think I had one of everything Return of the Jedi back in 1983 and 1984. I mean, I had a garbage can, for Christ's sake. Anyway... By the time the boom of the early 90s had died, and I moved from trading cards fully into focusing on comics, as well as buying a lot of CDs and stuff like that, I did have a small binder of random cards, uh, some fuller, nearly full sets, others just a few random packs of various sets. The binder was one of those 1980s binders that had a denim cover, and not only did I put cards in this binder, but I stapled the wrappers to the packs inside each of the binder covers. Now, collecting non-sports cards, therefore, probably starts right around 1990. And I think it was probably that 1990 WWF set. I know that's the WWE now, but back in the day, you guys know it was the WWF. And I remember really liking it because they were full-color glossy cards with action shots, almost like upper deck stuff, but for pro wrestling. Um, I bought a few packs of those during the two years or so I was really into wrestling, which was just after WrestleMania five until right after WrestleMania seven. I think I checked out right before or right after SummerSlam of that year. But the real buying was when it came to cards based on comics and science fiction. 
Marvel and DC put out a number of sets in the early 1990s, with Marvel leading the charge and more or less doing it better. The Series 1 cards and Series 2 cards had great art and actually taught me a lot about Marvel's non-X-Men characters. I also had those X-Men sets too, at least the ones that had art by Jim Lee and other hot artists at the time. I think I may have owned a few packs of the Marvel Masterpieces series, which had cards painted by Joe Gisco and that were, I mean, they were gorgeous. Consequently, they would collect all of his art into a four-issue miniseries that was just basically a gallery comic. Um, Jusko was the first artist I really associated with painted comics, a domain that soon became dominated by Alex Ross. I wound up being fine with a couple of the Marvel Masterpieces comics. Besides, I had DC cards to collect. And DC finally jumped into the trading card game, or at least this glossy card for every character trading card game, with Cosmic Cards, a 1992 set that featured every character except those associated with uh, Batman. And I think this is because Topps had the rights to Batman at the time. Well, and Skybox was putting out the Cosmic Cards and the 1993 Cosmic Teams set. And, you know, I don't think I noticed it at the time. I was just happy to get the cards and made a serious effort at collecting them. So serious, in fact, that through buying packs of cards, I managed to get every single card of the Cosmic Cards set, except for Booster Gold. I mean, I hunted like crazy for that card, but it all wound up being for naught and never got it. I don't think I ever wound up with all of the hologram cards either. When the Cosmic Teams set came out a year later, I just went and bought a box from the comic store instead of trying to collect through individual packs. That's how I got my complete set. Almost two, actually. So yeah, I cheated. I mean, granted, I paid for them with my own money, and I did have to go through the box and open every single pack, but come on, the Cosmic Card set was the one I put some serious work in for. This I bought all at once, and I definitely enjoyed owning the set, I have to say, but I miss the fun of the chase. Still, I enjoyed flipping through the album. I enjoyed looking at the cards. Overall, the artwork was really solid, and I think that was the appeal to me, because at the time, I knew just about everything that was on those cards. And that's not a brag or anything. I just happened to have all of the Who's Who series. I read it repeatedly. And even though I wasn't reading every single DC comic out there, I was doing the, quote, watching TV by reading TV guide thing of keeping up with all of the books in, lo- in the line by reading the Direct Currents monthly newsletter and later on previews. The other card series I bought, by the way, There was a wonderful Star Trek series for the 25th anniversary that I chased quite a bit, both in the original series and the next generation. It was kind of the Trek version of the classic top Star Wars cards, but on slightly better card stock. And then there was what I think is my favorite of these sets, the Star Wars Galaxy trading cards. These were put out by Topps, and I believe were the first time the company had produced Star Wars cards since Return of the Jedi. They were of higher quality, had chase cards, that had some sort of foil etching and formed a puzzle. And they were all about different interpretations via artists, especially comic book greats of the time. I love this set because it was gorgeous. You not only had different artists doing interpretations of different characters and scenes, but you had cards featuring foreign movie posters and concept art. I think, too, out of all the non-sports trading cards I owned in the early 90s, this is the one set I wish I had held on to. And heck, I didn't even own the whole set. I collect as much as I could before I either got tired of cards altogether, shifted all my money over to comics, or they actually stopped being carried in stores. 
Now, the market fell out on these altogether right around the time the market bottomed out for comics. They both came more or less because of the same type of speculation by both collectors and fly-by-night hobbyists who had become convinced that their multiple copies of a certain comic or baseball card set would pay for college, retirement, a yacht, and a summer home in the Hamptons. Okay, that's exaggerating. Real estate in the Hamptons is way too expensive even for that. But I was curious as to how this card collecting hobby came about and how the sort of high rollers in the hobby worked. So I went and reread a book that I'd owned years ago, but loaned to my brother-in-law who never gave it back. So I checked it out of the library, which is Mint Condition by Dave Jameson. This was originally published in 2010, and I know that there's been different resurgences of baseball cards and trading cards since, especially in the last couple of years. But even without anything regarding the most recent 10 years, it's a pretty thorough look at how not only how baseball cards got their start, but the idiosyncrasies of the collectors and the market. Now, I will be completely honest here, and I will tell you that I grabbed the book from the library because I wanted to do just a little more background research so this episode was not entirely basically me talking about what was on cards and reminiscing about them. But it is really fascinating and does give us a history of the baseball card industry as well as how Tops became the titan of collector's cards. Among the more interesting stories were how they deftly negotiated contracts with the MLB Players Union so that the likeness fees were not massive, and stories about a number of individual cards, many from the pre-Tops era. I shouldn't be surprised that some of the history of the hobby, meaning collecting and not the manufacture of cards, is similar to the comic book collecting hobby, especially when you get into the collecting and dealing of high-end expensive cards. For instance, you've got grading and slabbing, which comics collectors have varying views on, especially because of how CGC has turned comics into a commodity. All right, well, they solidify the commodification anyway. Baseball cards is a similar organization, such as PSA, which handles grading and assigning value to cards. Like CGC, this sets collectors up for dealing with someone else's bias or some other bullshit quirk that doesn't really allow for a second opinion. There are more than one appraising entity out there, but I wonder if they don't carry the cash that these do when it comes to a second opinion. But I also don't know how conflicts between appraisers' opinions are resolved. If Again, if anyone listening here has really serious experience with the slabbing um, and, and grading and things of baseball cards, I'd love to hear about that. Comic books as well. Um, you know, little tangent here. I, I have like, two comics that might be worth more than $20. And I briefly considered getting one of them slabbed, especially since it's signed by the creator. But then I realized that I think the fee that I would pay for slabbing the comic would be very close to the value of the comic. And therefore, it would not really make much sense. So it's just going to sit bagged and boarded in a long box. Anyway, back to baseball cards. Now, I may be way off base because I've never had the baseball card um, appraised or slabbed. Uh, the only card, I, I have a few in a, in a box somewhere. Uh, they are all of Keith Hernandez, including his rookie card. It's probably the only card of any decent value I own. Um, it's in one of those hard plastic card sleeves. But I, I, I can see if you own something that is of real value, like a Mantle rookie. Um, or in the comics world, like like a Fantastic Four number one, you know, and it's in a good enough condition. 
to go for this, but you know, comics and cards can be cleaned up and doctored, by the way. And that's something that was that Jameson explored in his book. He profiles Kevin Saucier, Saucier, who takes him through his process of using techniques and chemicals to clean and restore an old card. From what I gather, this isn't exactly counterfeiting. It's also something that Jameson actually highlights, but it's controversial because it's an alteration of the original card. Saucier comes off as a bit of a mad scientist in the book. I also get the feeling that he enjoys trolling people. Still, it's fascinating. And and the odd characters that were the big names in, in baseball card collecting, at least in 2010, are fascinating in this book. You know, who let who let the hobby overrun their lives, who has strict rules about how, when, where he trades cards. Now, the book really is like a history lesson. It doesn't really apply to me in that sense until we do get to near its end. In fact, like the big time collectors and stuff like that, this is not like my realm. But when we're talking about the history of the hobby and the hot cards when I was actually buying baseball cards in the late 80s, I come in with Upper Deck. That company started in 1989, and it helped popularize the Chase card. And its most famous card was the very first Ken Griffey Jr. card. It's a card that is also highlighted in a film that I'm going to talk about later in this episode, which is called Jack of All Trades. Upper Deck's cards were always more special than tops. They were printed on high-quality, glossy stock. They were priced way higher per pack. So they automatically felt like they would be worth more, even if they were overprinted. I didn't know that at 12, by the way. <laughs> you know, I mean, I easily bought into the shine of Upper Deck. But the Griffey card became important because not only was he the hottest rookie in 1989, but nobody else produced a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card that year in their regular set. So Upper Deck wound up having a leg up on everyone else. Griffey was card number one in the 1989 set. And that was the decision of Tom Giedemann, who was a college student who knew the founders of the company back when it was a sports card store and not a multi-million dollar baseball card company. Giedemann was also a fairly accurate at predicting which cards would wind up being valuable. So they gave him the numbering job. As a side note, by the way, he cleverly gave any card ending in 69 to a player with a name that sounded like a porn star's name, such as Dickie Thon, who was card number 769 in that set. Anyway, that number one card, when they were trying to make the decision of who to give it to, came down to Greg Jeffries, Gary Sheffield, Sandy Alomar Jr., and Ken Griffey Jr., Giederman was a Mariners fan. He knew of the buzz around Griffey. But when they were creating the card set, this was November of 88, Junior had been drafted, but he had yet to actually put on a uniform. So the guys at Upper Deck found a picture of him in his high school baseball uniform. It was something he didn't even know about. This, like I mentioned, would become the hot card for 89. But two things wound up happening. First, Upper Deck overprinted them. They put out one million of these things which as anybody knows, immediately devalues it. Plus, since cards were sometimes cut weirdly, because number one is the upper left-hand corner of a card sheet, and Upper Deck had a replacement policy of damaged cards from a fresh pack. Jay McCracken, who was the head of Upper Deck, said that they just printed sheets of 100 Ken Griffey Jr. cards. The other story I enjoyed reading about in mint condition was the story behind what has to be probably the most infamous card of the 1980s, and that is the 1989 Fleer Billy Ripken card. 
This is the card with a picture of Ripken holding a bat that has the word fuckface written on its bottom. There's a number of articles in the video clips about this, so I won't go into tremendous detail here. But the story is that Ripken claims that it was a batting practice bat of his and he accidentally grabbed it for the picture. I've never actually seen this card in real life, just in pictures. Fleer and Donruss cards weren't as available near me, or if they were, I didn't care because I was Tops or GTFO. In fact, I distinctively remember having two very early Fleer cards. A 1982 Steve Sachs, which I think was a rookie card, but it was bent to holy hell, and it had a bad resolution picture. It looked like it was taken by one of those old disc cameras from the early 80s. And a 1982 Dave Beard card. Not that anyone remembers who Dave Beard was, but I remember him because of the 85's top set. He was the only Mariner whose card I owned. In fact, I didn't even know who the Seattle Mariners were until I got that card. Anyway, back to Billy Ripken. The point of the card, at least the coverage in the book, is not the outrage that followed. Oh, and there was outrage. But the upward pricing of the card. Like a hot stock, the value of old fuckface shot up overnight and then crashed just as quickly. The card was still going for about 10 or 15 bucks after it crashed, but compared to the hundreds it was selling for at its height in 1989, that's really significantly less. When it comes to the bottom falling out of the market, Jameson points to the overproduction that devalued a lot of cards, and also the fact that parents weren't throwing these childhood things away at the rate that they did in the 50s and 60s, when the baby boomers had grown up and moved out of their homes. Kids in the 80s were also not putting them in their, like, bicycle spokes to make noise, so there's that too. And I'm sure that there are a number of Generation Xers who have shoeboxes full of the cards sitting in childhood bedroom closets, or they've taken them with them in a move, or they got rid of them because they had the, hey, come get this shit or we're throwing it away because we're downsizing conversation with their boomer parents, and they either took it, realized it was worthless, and offloaded it, or they just told their parents to, yeah, just get rid of the shit. The 1994 baseball strike did not help. And a significant, it, it did a significant amount of damage to baseball, which I think you can argue it really hasn't fully recovered from. And I know it's been almost 30 years and baseball's kind of changed in many regards, but the fervor that people have for, say, the NBA, the NFL, it's there to a slightly lesser extent of baseball as opposed to where it was back in, in its golden era or its silver era of the, the, the 30s through the 60s. But also like, it, it, you know, it was, it was huge in the, in the 80s and early 90s. But that's just conjecture on my part. For all I know, people are, you know, it, it really is as popular. But with baseball cards, they really didn't hit that height ever. Um, kids were moving on in the 90s to collector's cards that would survive the crash that were game-based Pokemon, Magic the Gathering, that sort of stuff. There was an object to collecting those cards because you could play those cards as opposed to just put them in an album and look at them every once in a while. My kid has tins full of Pokemon cards. He tried to get me to play or tried to teach me to play. I could make heads or tails of it. But you know, as interesting as the history of the hobby and the market and what was valuable then and what is valuable now is... I think that the personal connection that I, 
as well as a number of other kids have to their wax packs of cardboard is more important. I've talked about some of my personal memories, but there are those of others. So I'll bridge that gap with a brief look at another book, Cardboard Gods, as well as the documentary Jack of All Trades, after this. Stick around. Drama, lust, snark, comedy, heartbreak, creativity, poetry, illicit affairs, rage, revenge, testosterone poisoning. Gunshots, sculpture, feminine hygiene products, naked car crashes. You know what we haven't had in a long time? And liver. Terry Moore's Strangers in Paradise, the audio adaptation, coming to your ear holes in late 2020 on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Liver is my life. I talked about Dave Jameson's book, Mint Condition, which covered a pretty extensive history of the baseball card industry, but a film that looks at the heyday of the 1980s speculation boom, as well as someone's personal story surrounding baseball cards, is the 2018 documentary, Jack of All Trades. Directed by Stuart Stone, who was an actor himself and has appeared in a number of television shows and films since he was a kid, most notably Donnie Darko and Harvey Glazer. Jack of All Trades is the story of how Stu sets out to make a documentary about baseball cards, but winds up finding a story about his estranged father. In fact, if you read the IMDb reviews of the film, a lot of people are really harsh, ranting about how it is, quote, not a baseball card movie, and even going as far as to call it staged. Those same reviewers also go to great length to talk about how they don't like Stu, referring to him as selfish and unlikable. Now, while I admit there are parts of this documentary where I find Stu to be pretty annoying, I also find him to be very real in the way he deals with what becomes a very sad story about his family. And the story in the film is really intriguing. So what happens in the film is this. Stu has a ton of baseball cards from the late 80s and the early 1990s. He takes them to a trading card show where he discovers that they are more or less worthless. 
This prompts the exploration as to why they're worthless, and I think the film does a pretty good job at that. Stu visits the motherland that is the Top's offices. He tracks down the people who were involved with Upper Deck back in the 89 and were more or less behind the Griffey card, so to speak. They're evasive as to whether or not the whole we printed entire sheets of Griffey's story is actually true, but I can imagine that they're protecting their image. He also has a great interview with Jose Canseco, who breaks down the baseball card speculation boom in a way that's incredibly clear. The film is a good primer on the boom and bust and also winds up being a sweet whatever happened to baseball card story in a way, especially when Stu profiles Paul Jones, aka Foul Ball Paul. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the world's largest baseball card collection, which at the time was somewhere around 2.8 million cards and counting. He's a guy with an unabashed joy of baseball cards, and it's nice to see that because you don't often get profiles of such joy. Stu even pays to have Topps produce a one-of-a-kind foul ball Paul baseball card, giving it to him toward the end of the film. But what makes Jack of all trades stand out is the story of Stu's father, Jack, and that's where we get the title, whose role Stu spends the better part of the film's first half avoiding, much to Harvey's consternation, because Harvey, his co-director, sees that Jack should be the focus of the story and not some very light and admittedly thin whatever happened the baseball cards narrative. In the 1980s, Jack had found that a baseball card store in Toronto named Sluggers was eventually a chain that profited hugely off the speculation boom. We get quite a bit of its history through Stu's narration and archival news footage about baseball cards, but also get a portrait of how Stu remembers Jack through home movies, specifically of Stu's bar mitzvah. This becomes important short because shortly after Stu turned 13, Jack left the family. It's a source of pain for Stu, the only son in the family, and someone who had obviously idolized his father and never came to terms with what his father did. When Stu finally relents to Harvey and starts looking to, into who his dad was beyond his more romantic impressions of him, he talks to family members who warn him to stay away from his dad, and they paint Jack as a shady businessman who is only really looking for a get-rich-quick scheme. Jack saw the coin he could make and went all in, feeding the speculation boom. If there's a comic book equivalent to this, by the way, it's probably Steve Milo and his American Entertainment Company, which had the flashy ads in the early 1990s comics. I covered that all the way back in uh, a few years ago, if you're interested in hearing me talk about it. So with about half an hour left in the film, Harvey tells Stu, we found your dad. This leads to a tense third act, with Stu talking to his dad and Jack sort of giving us an inside look at someone who was the speculator, although Jack is very evasive about leaving his family. In the end, you do feel for Stu and really come to hate his dad, even though the man is clearly messed up. The movie ends with Stu and his family and friends having a party and opening packs of cards. They even eat the 30-year-old chewing gum. And while I guess we can see why people might have been disappointed with this film, I think that the IMDb hate for Jack of All Trades comes from the sense of entitlement that fans tend to express when they don't get exactly what they want. I enjoyed it, specifically because it goes from being a movie about baseball cards and becomes one that's very personal and ultimately sad. Pop culture can mean something to a person in ways that go deeper than just nostalgia. And we see this on prominent display in a book that really embodies what baseball cards can mean to a person, which is Josh Wilker's Cardboard Gods. Also published in 2010, it's a memoir through the lens of this part of popular culture. So yeah, right up my alley here. 
telling of Wilker's unconventional childhood and adolescence as the son of a mom who left their father, though they never formally divorced, during the heady days of the hippie movement, she went to live a bohemian lifestyle at a house in Vermont. It includes stories about his attending a school without walls in the 70s and the struggles that his mom and her boyfriend Tom went through to try to make the hippie dream happen. They eventually get regular jobs because they can't sustain things. To their credit, they don't sell out for cocaine and Mercedes-Benz like so many of their peers, but the life they have is still tough, and it's tough on the kids. Wilker and his older brother disconnect and reconnect as they grow, and sports winds up being one of the few things they have in common. The book is set up through that common thread of sports, with each of the chapters beginning with the card of a particular player, followed by the memories of a particular year of his childhood. It's actually a book form of a blog he's been running for years, a blog that's still kind of active, or at least there was an entry about Tom Seaver back in 2020 when the Mets ace passed away. Wilker, being a Sox fan, is a huge fan of Carl Yastrzemski. Not sure if he had the card where Yaz has the really big sideburns, though. Anyway, Cardboard Gods is the book version of a man flipping through his old baseball card collection and stopping at a number of them because it triggered a memory. And it vividly and honestly shows an unconventional childhood, a tough adolescence, and the drift that one has in his 20s. It's not only candid, but it's self-aware. Wilker has little to no illusion of how hard this life was, but also does it without too much navel-gazing. He also doesn't seem to live in a state of denial the way that Stuart Stone seemed to be in in Jack of All Trades. Oh, there's certainly nostalgia in here, especially when it comes to the cards that are reprinted. But that is secondary to a really clear story about the waywardness of the 1970s, a feeling that just seems to, at least from my outsider's view, define the aesthetic of that decade. I mean, it really was a time when the culture seemed to be trying to figure out what to do with itself, unlike the 80s, which seemed to have a clear narrative. Man, I could do a whole episode on this, as well as a number of things that I've talked about. But I'll wrap up this portion by saying Cardboard Gods is outstanding and really speaks to the love and attachment that we have to what we collect as kids. In fact, these days, I only own a few baseball cards. Like I said, they're all Keith Hernandez cards. I mentioned owning his rookie card. I bought that off eBay a long time ago for only a few dollars, really. And I also have a collection of him throughout the 80s and a couple from the 70s. Otherwise, I don't have any other baseball cards. Well, except for what I bought for my next segment. And that's when I'm actually going to unwrap packs of vintage cards that I've purchased. What's in them? Will they be anything interesting or valuable? Will I get a Dave Beard or an Ivan de Jesus card? Because I had like 20 Ivan de Jesus cards back in the late 80s. Well, find out after this.
Take it away, Derek. What's your question? Why do you guys talk about comics so much? Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? 18 years. <laughs> Toothbrush is still fresh. Did they have sex? Because, I mean, she Hulk, you know. Damn it, Tony. We went an entire episode without mentioning Maggot, and then you ruined it. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? Batman's got his little fishbowl on his head, but <laughs> Superman doesn't. Cyclops was right. Except when he was wrong. Master Bruce, you are calm. I'm going to silently judge all of you. Shut up, beast. <laughs> Shut up. Like I've read it so many times, you know, it pretty much just crumbled in my hands. Come on, old chum. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? See, I didn't hate Hellcat until you made me read this miniseries. It was just a joke, but you made it real, Justin. No. You made it real. I, I prefer my Dazzler singing, like, Creedence Clearwater Revival songs at Australian bars. Titty discs in it. That's what to be known as from now on. Like, I'm gonna go into the Marvel Wikipedia and whatever it is. The worst titty discs. get better than that. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? Now playing on fanelspodcast.blogspot.com. I'm back for one more segment in which I'm going to unwrap some packs of cards. I'm actually going to start with the non-sports collector's cards because I bought them completely randomly. Instead of the uh, baseball cards, which I deliberately bought two wax packs of from specific years. First of these is the most random set that I didn't know existed. And I think it's a good example of like how in the early 90s they were making trading card trading cards for everything. I found it in a thrift store. I was uh it's a place local to this really great taco place that I uh that I get takeout from. And I'd seen vintage toys in that window in the window of the store like all the time. And they had a sign like advertising comics. Now, comics-wise, they didn't really have anything. Although they did buy 20 bucks of comics off of me from because I was just trying to offload some. But anyway, for a buck, I got a pack of Saved by the Bell, the College Years trading cards. I mean, I think this is more random than the Full House and Family Matters series. The show didn't even last a full season. Is it really, really that? <laughs> anyway, it was put out by Pacific Trading Cards of Linwood, Washington. And um, what do you get on a Save by the Bell trading card? If I look at it, it's it's it is a uh, orange, purple, magenta, and kind of seafoam green, you know, glossy holographic like kind of foil packaging. Ten, find all ten different prism cards that are randomly inserted. There's ten cards in a pack. And it says, this deluxe set gives the entire 110-card set so you can get a factory set. You'll receive a full mint set of the original printing. 
limited quantities available. So for $15.95, you could just order the whole set. 30-year-old trading goes, I'm sure that whole set does go, not go for very much anything. All right, so we're opening it up. We have a, ooh, a Kelly Kapowski card of Tiffany Amber Thiessen staring. Um, this must be, this is some publicity like model shot or something. Um, on the back, there's a screenshot of Kelly and Zach from an episode and something, uh, a bunch of uh, like quotes from it or something. So, okay. Uh, Leslie. The front of these cards have a picture of um, one of the cast members and or, or something. And the back seems to have something to do, a couple of lines of dialogue from the episode. Kelly got a couple of, there's, there's multiple cards for, um, from publicity photos and things. We've got multiple Kelly cards, um, Tiffany Thiessen in various really, uh, you know, attractive looking poses. Um, let's see. I've got Leslie who was one of the, it was the blonde girl who was kind of, uh, who was introduced as one of the newer characters. Um, another Kelly card, a Zach card with Mark Porgosler and that floppy nineties hair thing. I think they stopped making it, put gel in his hair. Slater and Zach. I love how they put quotes around the names of the, uh, the characters. Like we Slater, Screech and Zach in their graduation gowns, I think from the original uh, show's last episode. And apparently a fun fact, fast fact about Saved by the Bell of Colleges is that Mark Porgosler plans to major in business or business law in college. Another Kelly, a Screech. And a Mike and Screech. That was, I think, Bob Golick played Mike. Um, so, all right. So you, you'll see you'll see pictures of these on the show notes. Next is a pack of the 1992 Spider-Man 30th anniversary trading cards that I got for about three bucks at my LCS. Uh, I wanted some vintage superhero cards to open on this show. Even though I never owned any cards from this series, I grabbed them because it's still a good example of how, like I said, if you had a comics-related property, you could get a card set. It was also Spider-Man. Spidey was hugely popular at that time. He was bound to get at least, at least one set. So let's see what's inside here. These are by... Um, Comic Images. The dramatic history of Spider-Man from his first appearance to latest. This 90-card series features artwork from a roster of some of Mar Marvel's all-time great artists. As a special plus, six Super Prism cards will be randomly packed within. These will be numbers 7 through 12 to complement the first six Prism cards in the Spider-Man The McFarlane era series. Another foil pack here. These are such a pain in the ass to open sometimes. Where you're going to bend the cards. All right. What do we get? Spider-Man versus the Vulture. We got two of them. We have Spider-Man versus the Hobgoblin. We have a what looks like a McFarlane drawn card of the Lizard. We have a J. Jonah Jameson card. We have the Jackal. I think a lot of these are just taken, I don't know if it's original art or if it's taken from panels or something. There's no sort of framed or trade dress on the front of the card. It's just a big image um, taking up the entire space of the card. I got one of the Kingpin. I have 
Um, it says six years ago, uh, becoming an orphan at the age of six after his parents were killed in an airplane crash overseas. Peter Parker was made by, raised by his father's brother, Ben, and his wife, May, in Forest Hills, New York. And we see May, Peter, and Ben in kind of a low-res picture. There's one called Bad Press that shows Peter looking at a J. Jonathan Jameson editorial. And then there is the a card that is basically the cover of, or at least the Spider-Man part of the cover of uh, Spider-Man number one by McFarlane. And it is a card devoted to Spider-Man number one. So yeah, so it's interesting how that doesn't, I don't know what the care put into that thing was. It, it's, it looks pretty interesting, at least as far as some of the um, descriptions on what's on the back of the cards is concerned, because it gives you a little fact about who the character is or, or what happened. Um, maybe a little bit of a summary. The front is glossy, the back is matte. Like I said, it's it's just reproductions of various panels or or something like that art that already existed. So I wonder if it was rushed into production or, or something, or if it really, we didn't really need to, um, uh, they didn't really need to put a lot of, of work into it because they were like, well, you know, the, the comics are going to sell themselves and stuff. So anyway, let's get on to the baseball cards here. So I'd originally wanted to do a pack for every year I collected Topps cards, but I was repeatedly outbid and hit the limit of what I was actually willing to pay on eBay but I did manage to snag two wax packs. Um, one was a, from 1986 and the other one is from 1987. And that's pretty cool because 86 was the first year I visited a card shop. And 87, I wanted to because that's the top set that we all remember, the one with the wood green border. And like the other packs, I have no idea what's inside them except for 15 cards and a stick of gum. I'm not going to eat the gum. I, I can't imagine this that, that would taste very good. The special offer that I was not very familiar with, it says, um, and I, I, I don't know why I've never took this up. This is one of those things. Collect six special offer cards and order any one of six 10 card sets of All-Stars and Hot Prospects. And then there was the Spring Fever Baseball Contest. They would run this every year. So I'm opening this up. The gum is stuck to a card. There we go. Yeah, that's... That's going in the garbage. Okay. What we got? What we got? What we got? The oh, yeah. The Spring Fever Baseball card the um, with the special offer that you could send for. I, you know what? I may have actually sent for these. Why do I remember filling this out? I may have filled this out when I was a little kid. I may have filled it out. I don't know if I ever sent it in, but I may have filled it out. All right. We got... Craig McMurtry of the Braves in the blue Braves uniform... Mike Madden of the Astros. Mike Madden received his first major league win on April 24th, 83. He collected his first major league hit on August 24th of 1983. Mariano Duncan of the Dodgers. Teddy Higuera of the Brewers. Oh, Doug Sisk of the New York Mets. There's a lot of uh, something to be said about uh, him in the Jeff Perlman book, The Bad Guys Won, and how they uh, really, uh, some of the people on the team really did not <laughs> make him feel very good. I believe he was technically a member of the uh, 86, he stayed on the 86 team through the whole thing. And uh, there's a little bit of a talk in baseball fact because Sisk has only been in the league for a few years. And it says the first player in Mets history to hit homers from both sides of the plate in the same game, Lee Mazzilli, September 3rd, 1978. Lee Tunnel of the Pirates. Some of these guys, now not to be, like make fun of people's looks, but like Lee Tunnel's got those big 80s glasses and a mustache. He, he looks like your chemistry teacher was playing for the Pirates. 
Juan Agosto of the uh, White Sox, Lou Whitaker. Lou Whitaker was actually a pretty pretty big All Star back in the uh, in the mid eighties. I remember him hitting a home run in the eighty six All Star game in the Tigers. Rich Thompson of the Indians, Jim Presley of the Mariners, Bob Horner. I remember Bob Horner from the Braves. He was another one who's who uh, I saw had a pretty decent career, from what I understand. Dave Schmidt of the Rangers. Glenn, uh, Glenn frickin' Davis hit a home run in the first game of the NLCS. He was a Houston Astro. Juan Beniquas of the Angels. And Randy Bush of the Twins. So whose card is now damaged by the powder from the gum. <laughs> so... <laughs> All right. Um, this '86 set, another right home about it, has that sort of you know black black and white border with the with that weird uh, I don't even know what to call that font that gives you the big names and the and, you know the big team names on the top. But uh, and the teams are all color coded in terms of the names that match the uniforms or the team colors and stuff. All right, let's go for the '87 pack. Uh, this is very similar, same offers, all that sort of stuff. Um, you can get. There's also an offer for card collector sheets. Uh, and again, with the with the gum just killing the cards. <laughs> All right. Ooh, I see a Met. All right. Again, the Spring Fever Baseball is in the middle of the pack. Um, ooh, we have the Reds Leaders card. This was uh, these were cards that usually I would file right behind the. Um, the manager. I'd like start with the manager and a team, and then I put the Reds leaders. And this is just like you know who had the Cincinnati Reds um, batting and pitching leaders for the previous year. No surprise, in 1987, Eric Davis and Dave Parker had a lot of the the team leading things. John Franco, uh, Tom Browning with uh, with a lot of, and Bill Gullickson with the pitching leaders. Jeffrey Mumphrey of the Cubs. I got Mike Krukow of the Giants. Ray Knight, who in the 87 set was in the Mets, but he'd already been uh, offloaded to the Orioles um, over the offseason, but he was the 86 MVP of the World Series. Kelly Gruber of the Blue Jays. I really do love these wood borders. It's a really well-composed card, even if the font on the names of the cards is a little bit too almost comic sansy. Bob Tewksbury of the Yankees. I don't even remember. <laughs> I don't remember him at all. John Shelby of the Orioles. Jack Howell of the Angels. Dave Gumpert of the uh, Cubs. Dave's boyhood hero is Al Kaline. He lettered in cross country and baseball in high school. He was, was second team All-American as college senior. I couldn't even put it a, an, an indefinite article in there. And then below that, on this date, August 2nd, 1959, Bill Bruton drilled two bases loaded triples in one game for the Braves. Bill's 1959 tops card was 165. They do height and weight, by the way. It's interesting. 6'1", 190. I got an 86 record breaker. Dave Rigetti set the big league save record. Big league save standard is shattered by... Rigetti, not really shattered. He had one more <laughs> of than the record, which was formerly held by the late Dan Quisenberry and tied by Bruce Sutter in the in the 80s. Ooh, Ozzie Smith, one of the members of Mr. Burns' softball team. Uh, Todd Worrell's 86 record breaker with the most saves in a season as a rookie. Apparently, he destroyed the first year mark for saves. 
Um, the former was with 36. The former was 23. So I guess that's a pretty impressive. That, yeah, that is a that is a destroying the record. Mike Birkbeck of the Brewers. Mike Woodard of the Giants. Roy Smalley of the Twins. And they got that little Win Twins logo. That was the old Twins logo up in the up in the logo part. Willie Hernandez of the Tigers. Apparently, he and his wife are the parents of three children. And then I have the A's leaders card. I have Jose Canseco, Alfredo Griffin, and Dave Kingman are the names on the batters. And then Steve Ontiveros, Kurt Young, Jose Rijo, and Joaquin Anular, Jay Howell are the pitching leaders. So, and this card is also damaged by the gum. So there you go. Nothing of value, but this is fun to do. And, and it's really just... Uh, Again, like the random people who who populate Major League Baseball list. No Ivan DeJesus cards, though. He was, like I said, he was like what I got a ton of. So <laughs> that'll do it. I will put a picture of all these show on the show notes. Um, so go there to see the awesomeness that was all these baseball cards, as well as scans of my Keith Hernandez cards, or at least um, a couple of pictures of my Keith Hernandez cards. Again, nothing any really thing special, probably not worth anything, but I'm still glad that I'm holding on to them. As for me, I will be back in July with another episode. Until then, check out the blog for essays and feel free to send feedback. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.